Hello, and welcome to the Future Web Series. My name is Nick Merrill. I'm a research fellow at the UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. And this is a series about where the internet is headed and what internets might come after this one. If you want to connect to the internet, you need an IP address. Like a postal address, an IP address makes you reachable by other computers. Where do you get one? Well, this is what you pay your internet service provider, or ISP, for. But where do they get the IP addresses from? This is where the Regional Internet Registry, or RIR, system comes in. All of the IP addresses in the entire world are under the authority of five RIRs, each with its own region. But RIRs do more than just give out IP addresses. Their goal is to make the internet work well, whatever that means in their region. And nowhere are the stakes higher than on the African continent, where internet penetration remains stubbornly low. In this episode, we'll talk to Amrish Fokir. Amrish works on internet measurement at the Internet Society. But before that, he worked for 10 years at AFRINIC, Africa's regional internet registry. We talk about the challenges of internet adoption in Africa, how urban versus rural infrastructure, coastal versus landlocked countries, and inequalities within the regional internet registry system itself make it so hard to roll out widespread internet access in the region. We also talk about a court order that held up Afrinex operation for months and how this incident changed the way people like Amrish think about the future of the RIR system. The next voice you hear will be Amrish. I was born and raised in Mauritius. I did my university studies in France and then in the UK and then decided to do my PhD uh, in South Africa, ending up in Mauritius again when I joined Afrinic. I've worked there for the last 10 years before moving to the Internet Society, and it was for me an eye-opening experience. It was an opportunity for me to experience the development of the Internet, which is something really important for the continent. I could experience that personally, and that was an amazing experience for me. Somehow adding my brick uh, to the building of the internet in, in Africa. Uh, I guess to set the stage a little bit, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges to internet governance in the African context and in the African continent? Yes, I would say Africa is facing a couple of challenges. First of all, there are many countries which are still struggling to, to meet uh, the basic needs in terms of internet connectivity. And that's because of multiple reasons. Many countries are landlocked. So we have 16 landlocked countries in Africa. So they are not benefiting at all from the massive development which is happening in the undersea cable sphere, where you have really big development happening and big investment. Not to mention that still a lot of the African sub-Saharan population is still in the rural areas. Unfortunately, some rural areas are not actually properly covered by internet connectivity because of a lack of infrastructure. Do you have any kind of sense what proportion of people in the African continent kind of are, I don't know if you would say underconnected or are waiting to, to get adequate access to the internet? So 58% of the sub-Saharan population lives in rural areas, which with actually little access to telecommunication infrastructure. And internet penetration on the whole for Africa is around 30%. So 70% of Africa, uh, whether rural or urban, do not have 
a proper access to the internet, which is quite problematic. So it really is kind of a majority of Africans are yeah. lacking kind of adequate access to the internet. Right. And, and that's why sometimes we mention about the next billion people that we would like to connect. Right. And I imagine, you know, some of the countries from whom that next billion will come are, you know, among the countries whose populations are growing the fastest. Indeed. Africa, a big majority of the African population is young and is growing. Countries like Nigeria and Kenya, they have a very active young population. And actually, the, these countries are also examples that other African countries can, can follow. They have been able to tap into the potential of, for example, the mobile devices uh, and to transform the economy based on uh, the use of these uh, devices. So a majority of the urban population in Nigeria is very well connected. Whether it is through formal economy or informal economy, they have been able to make good use of uh, mobile broadband. And also this has had a, a, a good impact on the competitiveness of the market with price going down and having many more internet service providers, therefore contributing to making the, the industry more, more flourishing. Those are great examples of kind of positive outcomes and, and kind of the upside of connecting people. It, it also, to me, highlights the risk or the uh, missed opportunity of failing to connect people. So I'm thinking, I know, for example, Senegal has a, a growing, rapidly growing population, very young population. It seems to me that there's a lot to be lost if young people in that country aren't connected, the kind of the opportunities that they miss out on, because it will only be harder to onboard folks as they get older. Certainly that was the case in the US. Yeah, very much so. So today it's it's not a mystery anymore that connecting people is, is very important. So we, we are right in the middle of a pandemic and with school closed in many places, many countries going back into lockdowns. And therefore, connecting these people has become really important, whether it is to, to enable school kids to learn from their home or to allow parents to work from home as well. Unfortunately, in Africa, in most places, the people using mobile, mobile devices, they are also buying data packages which are capped. And therefore, they do not have the luxury of having an unlimited internet access. So in this context, can you walk us through the recent situation with Afrinic? Yes. So the recent situation with Afrinic is quite an interesting one from, I would say, from a global internet policy perspective. So to give you a little bit of context, so Afrinic as one of the five RIOs is part of a system called the Internet Registry. And Afrinic, as mentioned before, has been set up in 2005. And with the least uh, number of IPv4 addresses and IPv6 addresses, because it was a smaller region in terms of internet needs. A quick note from me here. What Amrish is talking about is this ongoing transition between IPv4 and IPv6. There are actually two versions of the IP addressing system in the world. IPv4 historically has been the addressing scheme, but... It was designed back when people thought the internet would be much, much smaller. We have completely run out of IPv4 addresses. In typical fashion, a lot of these IPv4 addresses are being hogged by the global north. 
If you ever get a chance to look at the IPv4 space, you'll see how much is taken up just by the US Department of Defense. With IPv6, there is no scarcity of IP addresses, but it does require newer equipment to upgrade. And often it is places like Sub-Saharan Africa who most need IP addresses that are least able to upgrade. The upshot of all of this is that Africa needs all of the IPv4 addresses it can get. Going to Afrinic to get IP addresses and then using them somewhere else is really, really antisocial. Remember, people need to get online in Africa. They can't work from home and children need to go to school during the pandemic. Okay. Back to Amrish. So what happened with Afrinic is that recently there was one of its members who was apparently seen to be using their number resources outside of Africa. And this was found to be a breach of contract from the Afrinic perspective. And therefore Afrinic decided to revoke these numbers allocated to that member. But of course, the issue was that this has started a quite lengthy legal dispute between the member and Afrinic, where eventually the Mauritian court issued a, the freezing of the Afrinic accounts. After that, the member sued Afrinic for having revoked the resources. So there's a conflict between Afrinic and some member, and people are suing each other. And a Mauritian judge says, okay, Afrinic, everything is frozen for you until we figure this out. Yes. And then in the midst of that legal dispute, there was some other disputes that came along, for example, reputational damage. And just to be on the safe side, we will freeze your account until uh, this is sorted out. <laughs> so what effect does this have on Afrinic's operations? The immediate effect is that they were not able to disperse any fund. They were not able to pay their employees. They weren't able to pay their suppliers. So basically the, the company was locked down. They were still operating somehow because some other people in the community decided that they would donate some funds to allow Afrinic to operate. But it took them, I think, three months to see some light at the end of the tunnel where eventually the judge said, okay, and freeze the accounts again. But it obviously put quite a big dent in, you know, Afrinic's operational capacity, it sounds like. Yes. So when, when your accounts are, are frozen, you basically cannot do any proper operations besides just the critical operations. The good thing is that they managed to maintain, I would say, the same level of service they, they were already providing to, to their members. But from what I've heard, it was quite a big blow in the morale of the staff. And also it shook a little bit the, the RIO system, which needs all the five RIOs to be functioning properly for that whole system to be strong and to be functioning uh, smoothly. If one of the five RIOs is being disturbed, then uh, it can shake, it can affect the whole operations of the whole RIR system. So tell me a little bit more about this kind of shaking the foundations of the RIR system. I mean, what were people saying about the RIR system? What were the takeaways and, and how are people now looking at the RIR system differently from how they may have been looking at it previously? Yeah, so the the RIO system has many has many good things. They have a they have proven themselves to be a, a 
a well-functioning system in the management of internet number resources with a community bottom-up approach where it is the community of the organization that more or less decides on how the number resources needs to be managed and allocated. But at the same time, the RIO system in itself has been criticized a couple of times by people working, I would say, in other types of model, taking, for example, ITU, where it is more government-led. And we have seen more and more cases where governments want to take a, a higher a higher stake in the management of the internet infrastructure. So, I mean, when you talk about government-led internet governance bodies, it seems like there are some risks there as well. Certainly, it could be that pursuing some narrow strategic interest, you know, a government does something that is is bad for the internet as a whole. Is that a risk there? Well, there is always that risk that that gov- that go- governments or authorities and national authorities take control of the internet because sometimes they they might feel feel threatened or just for the fact to have more control on the system, and this is what makes the beauty of the internet because it is a decentralized set of networks, and this is reinforced by uh, the fact that the REL system are themselves based on a kind of decentralized community. Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, yes, the RIR system is based on this kind of decentralized model. At the same time, you know, unwittingly, this Mauritian court kind of pokes some holes in that image by showing that, you know, a simple court order can actually have this really big impact on internet governments globally. So maybe it's the case that the RIR system has never been as decentralized as it's made out to be? Yeah, that's that's something to be considered. So indeed, the fact that Afrinic, well, the Mauritian court issued a freezing order is, is questionable in the sense that it has the potential to create a, a very big operational issue on the internet, which to my opinion, maybe the court itself was not aware of whether such a, a freezing order would have had such a big impact, which brings to me the fact that perhaps there need to be still some amount of education to be done. So internet actors such as the internet society need to be providing more information about what is the proper way of networking. And I believe if the courts of Mauritius had that same amount of information, they might not have issued such a stringent order to freeze the account of an operational body of the internet. I mean, that certainly sounds like it would work in a well-meaning court system. I guess I'm more wondering about a court system that isn't so benign, you know, a kind of a a court system that working at the behest of an authoritarian government kind of intends to cause some degree of chaos in internet governance. Is that something that we should be concerned about? Yeah, most definitely. So so the series of events that happened to Afrinic also raised the question whether Mauritius was a proper home for, for an Araya. But looking at other places in Africa, I would still be worried because there have been so many other cases of authoritarian governments taking actions and not in favor of an open internet. Have, I mean, we see yeah. this even a little bit in the United States with the operation on our sites, right? They take action against domain name registries or, or registry backends or registrars and seize domain names. And this is 
uh, exploiting the fact that organizations are domiciled in the United States and they have to respond to these court orders. And that allows basically the U.S. federal government to seize domain names without due process. And, you know, so far it's only been kind of targeted at copyright. But lately they brought down uh, this Iranian news site under kind of this charge of spreading disinformation. And, you know, we could argue about what disinformation even is, or, you know, that mm-hmm. certainly does not uh, jive with this idea of an open internet, right? And and I think when I think about RIRs, this is something even deeper and more infrastructural and more wide ranging. And I imagine, you know, if the U.S. ever wanted to cause chaos, it would certainly be within their power to shut down RN. Yeah, the risk the risk is, is always out there that uh, a government starts acting not in the interest of of the internet that is why it is important to consider the governments also as a stakeholder of this of this complex ecosystem it is important for them to understand that shutting down the internet or preventing people to have freedom of expression can have more nasty effect than the the short term goal of censoring or, or shutting down the internet. So right. it's, a, it's an ongoing right. process to to teach them or to, to show them that. Given these risks and also given the upsides of, of maintaining the internet, especially given the high stakes in the African context where there are uh, so many people still waiting to, to get a connection to the internet, do you see any alternatives to the RIR system, any changes to the RIR system coming through the pipeline? Or do you think that it's going to have to do more with educating the court system and things like that? Yeah, so there have been some some thoughts about what is going, what is the RIR system going to become after the depletion of the IPv4 and number pool? Because first and foremost, the RIOs were were set up to manage that very limited amount of internet number resources because you have like 3.7 billion usable IPv4 addresses. And the number was so, so small that it was very important to manage them in a, in a very strict manner. But with IPv6, that issue of limited number of number resources is not there anymore. And therefore, people have been questioning the importance of the RR system, let's say in 10 years, maybe it would just need to allocate IPv6 address space and just forget about it because that space is so huge that you don't need really to take care of how you are allocating them. It might become at some point in time where the original goal of the RIR might change a little bit. And that's why you have you have more and more RIOs that are investing into uh, research and innovation and trying to understand the dynamics of the internet and how they interconnect, therefore providing an, an added value to the internet ecosystem on top of being a simple registry. Interesting. They're trying to find kind of another way to provide value. Right. Well, this is a great transition into kind of my next question, which is you've done a bit of internet measurement work. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that work and and in particular, kind of how you view the impact of that work in the context of internet governance in the African context. Thanks to thanks to the research that I've been doing in the last few years, they allowed me to have a quite deep understanding of the internet ecosystem in the African region. So I mentioned earlier on about the lack of infrastructure in a lot of African countries, but not only you have a lack of infrastructure, but the research that I did 
showed us clearly that there, there is a lack of in interconnectivity between networks in the African regions themselves. And the result of that is that in many countries, you would have what we call circuitous routing, where two networks of the same country would have to use external links, sometimes towards Europe or even to America, and then coming back to Africa to a neighboring network. So that's quite a lot of money lost because they have to pay higher transit fees. And also it has a cost for the end users, which has a higher latency towards the services that they want to reach. We have also seen that a lot of content is also hosted outside of Africa. And this is mainly because of a lack of hosting facilities. So this data that we have collected can actually inform the, the policymakers in that countries, for example, they could provide incentives to, let's say, data centers to come and operate in their country. For example, if I'm not mistaken, in Rwanda, the, the authority decided to provide tax-free importation of equipment for setting up data centers. And eventually this had a, a quite positive effect on the localization of local content within the country. So I guess on this topic, What's it like working in global internet governance as a Mauritian? And even what's it like working in kind of African internet governance as a Mauritian? Because Mauritius is such a small country. I mean, for, for listeners, it's like a 1.6 million person country. It's kind of like a, a San Francisco sized country, right? So, so what's it like, you know, kind of advocating on this huge continental scale as someone from this really, really small country? That's an interesting question. Yeah, it might it might feel a little bit puzzling for uh, such a small <laughs> someone from such a small country to be advocating, you know, a very global or continental type of advocacy. But the good thing is that we are in, in in an ecosystem where the size of the country doesn't matter, but really what do you bring on the table? And that is why Research which are empirical, which are evidence-based, is really important. Whether you are coming from a big country or from a small country, what matters is the, the quality of the data that you are actually um, bringing on the table. What is the most exciting thing in your mind in all of internet governance and all of internet measurement? I would say it's twofold. The first one is, I would say, the glamorous part where, okay, you can work with different stakeholders and bring data into the picture and you can show where things are not working right. And it is nice when you have a good response from the people listening to you. And it is nice when regulators come and meet you saying that they would like to set up this and this efforts or projects. But there is also that other side where the same stakeholders that you need to work with, the same regulators, the same governments are acting uh, not in the best interest of the nation, of the people censoring the internet and also shutting down the internet. So the good thing with internet measurement is that all of this, you cannot hide. Eventually, internet researchers will find that what are the techniques you're using and what are the ways that you're using to cut down this, this very important tool, which is the internet. I, I think a lot of people probably relate to that dual life of having this glamorous side of a job and then this very less glamorous, but, you know, equally important, maybe even more important side yeah. that, that's practical and, and political. And, and that really is the hard work. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the world about internet governance, internet governance in Africa, internet measurement or anything else? So 
what what we have seen with members suing Afrinic and then somehow hitting the RIO system, what I would say is that RIOs usually are there for the good of the continent. And usually the community should be there to help protect this mandate of an RIO to do the, the proper job, whether it is the simple registry operation or the more extended work that Afrinic is doing, uh, which is, you know, internet governance and capacity building and all of this. But we have seen also, I would call it maybe some dark forces, whether it is for purely commercial reasons or, or to profit the system in, in a way. Running the internet globally is not a walk in the park. It has many ramifications and there are many tensions and many abuses that can easily happen and turn a functional environment upside down. It is very easy to break things, but it is very hard to build things and, and a community or, a, or an RIO takes time to be built. Afrinic itself was created in 2005, but it took them 10 years to reach that level and another 10 years for them to reach the level they are now. But it, it, it is so easy to break a system if the community itself is not properly aware of the dangers. What stands out to me in all of this is that the structure of the RIR system may itself change from one fundamentally concerned with numbering to one more holistically concerned with the health and well-being of internet infrastructure. What will that look like from the perspective of the global RAR system to shift from number delegation to something a little bit more like measurement or policy intervention? And what will the relationship be between these non-state entities like RARs and governments whose goals only sometimes align with the health of the internet? This ongoing site of cooperation and conflict will be one of the deciding factors over the internet in the next 10 years, especially as the internet rolls out to new internet using populations in the global south. It's really a place to watch. By the way, Amrish mentioned offhandedly that Afrinic is the newest RIR. It was set up in 2005. So who managed IP addresses in Africa before then? Well, I looked it up, and apparently RN and RIPE NCC. That's right. Europe got the top half of the continent, and North America got the bottom half. How colonial is that? In case you missed it, last time I sat down with Jake Hartnell to talk about DAOs. You can find a link to that show in the show notes. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity and to the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for making this podcast ad-free for everyone. This podcast was recorded by me, Nick Merrill, in Oichin, the traditional lands of the Ohlone people who have still not been recognized by the U.S. federal government.